Oh God, we must not forget. We cannot forget. May the teaching of Holy Scripture today be a part of your strategic effort to help us remember. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is it that the world loves a war story? When to a man and woman we all hate war. Why is that? The media are touting the upcoming election in a few days as a national referendum on the war. Our daughter Chrissy is married to a medic with the U.S. Army Rangers. And we are praying earnestly that his unit is not sent to Iraq. Although Seventh-day Adventist boys, true, Seventh-day Adventist boys and girls do end up in the war. Imagine my surprise to discover as I'm reading a book on that famed battle in World War II for the island of Iwo Jima. I'm reading this book and I discovered that one of the, the most famous war photographs in history in America, one of those boys, let me put that photograph on the screen, one of those boys right there is a Seventh-day Adventist. In fact, he's the young man at the very front planting the pole in the ground. His name, Harlan Block, from West Laco, Texas. I'm reading James Bradley's New York Times bestseller, The Flags of Our Fathers. Listen to this description. Just, let's just listen to this. Speaking of the uh, Block family, early in their move to the valley, the Rio Grande Valley, Belle, that would be uh, Harlan's mother, became a fully accepting practitioner of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I don't think I could have described it any more succinctly than this. Well done. The vivid Protestant strain that assumed a seven-day creation of the earth, a great controversy between Christ and Satan, and a millennial return of Christ into history, at which moment the dead will awaken, evil will vanish, and time will end. Not bad. For a New York Times bestseller, not bad at all. Then he goes on, Harlan was a child most influenced by Belle, her husband became an Adventist as well, and her beliefs. He, Harlan, grew up feeling sure of what was right and wrong, confident of this ordered view of the world. He was a tease of the girls. He was a star on the high school football team. But when it came time for signing up, he joined the Marines, got shipped off to a rocky crag in the Pacific called Iwo Jima, and on that island gave his life for the country he loved. The world loves a good war story. There's no such thing as a good war, but we love the stories. And the Bible is replete with war stories. In fact, one of its most famous stories, one of the truly great classics of military strategy and history, is the framework, the vital framework for our teaching today. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. Daniel, that great apocalyptic book of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 5. Page 599, if you have our pew Bible, you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. We have a pew Bible right in front of you there. Grab it. Page 599, New King James Version, which I will be reading out of this morning. Daniel chapter 5. Those of you listening on the radio, watching, grab that Bible near you and join us, please. One of the great military classics of all time. Daniel 5, verse 1. Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords... And drank wine in the presence of the thousand. It's party time in Babylon. Although for the life of me, I cannot figure out how anybody tonight would be dreaming of partying. The barbarians are at their very gates. Just outside the walls. And here's what gets me. Everybody at the party knows, knows that they're surrounded. The Persians have conquered everything in their victorious path. They are knocking on the gates of the mighty city of Babylon. 
But that's exactly why the party goes on, because everybody knows Babylon is invincible. Babylon had a double set of twin walls on the outside of the city. 24 feet and 26 feet, respectively. Giant walls. In some places, up to 40 feet tall at the gate of Ishtar. Then inside the city, another double set, 12 feet and 22 feet thick, respectively. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is going to break through four walls and conquer this largest of the cities of antiquity. Unless, of course, they swim. I mean, I suppose you could swim up the river into the city because a river runs through it. That's true. Let me put a map of, uh, let me put a map of Babylon, the ancient Babylon, on the screen for you. You see that river? That's the river Euphrates. It goes straight through the city. Now, the map doesn't show that, in fact, the walls go across the river itself. You can't just take a big boat and ride through the city. But the river cuts Babylon almost in half, the, Euph the Euphrates River. So if you were going to swim that river, by the way, you'd have to swim through a 24-foot 20, thick wall and then a 26-foot thick wall. Then you'd have to go through the 12-foot thick and then the 22-foot thick. There's no, nobody is going to swim into this city. The river is up to the top. And besides, word is that they have enough food inside these walls to last a decades-long siege, outlast it. So they're partying tonight. It's party on dude in Babylon, and they do. Babylon has fallen. Is fallen that great city? Verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, verse 4, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Mark it down, ladies and gentlemen. Only a fool plays with the holy. Do you know what's holy? Sex is holy. It's a divine gift. A man and woman living within the protective walls of matrimony. If you're playing with sex and you're not married to her, you are. You are headed for judgment just as surely as Belshazzar is tonight. Only a fool would play with what's holy. The Sabbath is holy. It's a gift of the Holy Creator to this human race. His favorite children in this corner of the universe. It's a day for you and me. The Sabbath is holy. You play with it. You're a fool. Your body is holy. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the only body you will ever have. Trust me. How you take care of it, what you put into it, that is a moral issue. You're holy. Only a fool plays with the holy. Belshazzar was a fool. Look at verse 5. In the same hour... The fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. A bloodless hand suddenly, mysteriously appears and begins to scratch its letters of awful doom on the palace wall. But Belshazzar and the inebriated party growers sober too late. And when the elderly Hebrew captive statesman turned prophet 
faithfully served Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, when that elderly Hebrew is brought in to that palace orgy. Daniel, whose very name proclaims, God is my judge. Daniel sadly shakes his white mane and he says, it's too late, king. It's too late. You have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. Fallen is Babylon the Great, that city that made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And in that instant, there's a hoarse cry from the opposite end of the banqueting hall. There is the clatter of footsteps. The Persians have broken through. And as verse 30 reads, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. How did he do it? This young Persian king, Cyrus. How in the world did he bring that invincible city to its knees? Let me share with you now Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story, just for a moment. Because 150, get this, 150 years earlier, the eternal God predicted this brilliant military strategy. He outlined its, he outlined its victory, actually named the king who would lead the midnight charge upon Babylon, and all of it one and a half centuries in advance. Don't believe me? Open your Bible a little further back to the book of Isaiah. Take a look at this. Isaiah chapter 45 Page 490 in your pew Bible. Look at this. 150 years in advance, God actually names the Persian general. King. He names him. Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. There he is. 150 years earlier. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. To subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings. To open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Number no, clue number one, we know the name of the conqueror of Babylon. His name is Cyrus. Clue number two, we know how he gets into the city. He gets into, one of the ways is the gates will be opened. The gates will not be shut. Verse 2, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze. I'll cut the bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places. You'll do this in the dark. I'll give it to you that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you. And isn't this just a classic of God's mercy? I have named you, though you have not known me. You won't even be a believer. But you're my man. I named you in advance a century and a half. You'll be my instrument. Isn't that something? Wow. Well, is there a clue three? Yes, there is. Just go back to chapter 44. Just the, the last two verses of chapter 44. God, who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Oh, there's another clue as to how this young king would do it. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, guess what? Cyrus is going to deliver you. He's going to deliver the remnant. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem. You shall be built in the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. Wow. Is there any other clue? Yep. Fifty years. Fifty years now before the actual attack. Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah. This is page, uh, Jeremiah chapter 50. That would be page 548. Look at this. God in advance is unfolding the strategy of how Babylon will be brought to her knees. Jeremiah 50. Take a look at verse 35. A sword. Jeremiah 50, 35. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon. 
and against her princes and against her wise men. The sword is against the soothsayers. They'll be fools. The sword is against her mighty men. They'll be dismayed. A sword against the horses and the chariots and the mixed peoples. A sword against the treasurers. They will be robbed. Now, notice verse 38. A drought is against her waters and they will be dried up. Now we know it's the Euphrates because it's Babylon's waters. And they will be dried up, for it is a land of carved images. They are insane with their idols. Babylon is an idolatrous power. And God says, I will have the last word. I will bring my Cyrus and bring that city to its knees. I will shut Babylon down. Wow. Did it happen as God predicted in that uh, century advanced prophecy? Listen to the Greek historian Herodotus. He describes that night, October 13, by the way, 539 B.C. Hey, we're about at an anniversary. We just passed it, didn't we? October 13, the city of Babylon fell. This is Herodotus, the Greek historian, writing. He, uh, we'll put this on the screen for you. He, Cyrus, posted his army at the place where the river enters the city. Remember, it goes in, it has to go, go in and come out. So he put an army on either side where the river is. Another part of it where the stream issues from the city. And he bade his men enter the city by the channel of the Euphrates when they should see it to be fordable. Okay, guys, I know it doesn't look like you can go in now. The river's going to drop. Trust me, when it drops, you go in. Instruction is clear? Yes, sir. All right. Then he, Cyrus, marched away with those of his army who could not fight. And when he came to the lake, distance away, Cyrus dealt with it and with the river just as had the Babylonian queen. There had been a queen once who had diverted the Euphrates to create a lake. Draw, how did he do it? Drawing off the river by a canal into the lake, which was now a marsh. He made the stream, that would be the Euphrates River, to sink till its former channel could be forded. When this happened, the Persians, who are back at Babylon, see the water going down. They, they made their way into Babylon by the channel of, of the Euphrates, which had now sunk to about the height of the middle of a man's thigh. Right here. The water is down to here now. You can march an entire army through water this deep. This is no problem. It's down to here. He's diverted the Euphrates. They go in. And Herodotus tells us further in this quotation that, in fact, they're having a party tonight. Daniel 5 is corroborated. They're having a party. And the drunken guards have left all the gates open. Because even if you swam down the Euphrates, you still can get in because there are these massive walls on either side of the Euphrates. You just can't get in. But they left the river gates open. What had God said? Isaiah 45, verse 1. What had God said? He had said, I will open before Cyrus the double door so that the gates will not be shut. I'll dry the river up and the gates will be open. Wow. A century in advance. The gates were not open. The point, God, when God's king of the east shows up, there ain't nobody that can keep him out. Pardon the queen's English. That that point is so significant. Would you take your study guide, please? It's in your worship bulletin right now. Our ushers will get you one if you do not have one. Hold your hand up. Take the study guide out. We want to start off with that point. Those of you listening on the radio right now or watching on television, you can go to our website. Let me give the address for you. pmchurch.tv. Click on to this series that is nearing its end. It's entitled Rumors of the East. This particular teaching today, Kings of the East. Click on the Kings of the East. It says study guide. You have it. When you click at study guide, you'll have the identical study guide we have. And I want to make certain that this point is clear as we finish this teaching. If you didn't get one, hold your hand up. We'll make sure that you do. 
All right, fill it in, please. When the divinely appointed king of the east shows up, there is nothing. The English is better there. There is nothing that can keep him out. What's all this have to do with rumors from the east? Ah, write it down. It's the critical historical clue that unlocks rumor number three. This is our final rumor. Rumor number three. Write that number in, please. Let's go to that rumor. The twin book to Daniel in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. So please go now to Revelation, where we will end. Revelation, chapter 16. Revelation, chapter 16. Let's go to the chapter on the seven last plagues. Now, the whole world knows that when you talk about the seven last plagues, you're describing what the Bible teaches is the end of human history as we know it. All right. So it's it's just before the end of human history. The seven last plagues. They're pictured as uh, seven bowls in the hands of seven angels. All right. So we're going to go to angel number six now. See if this language sounds familiar. This would be Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Page 831 in the Pew Bible. Look at verse 12. Just one verse. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl, the sixth plague, on the great river Euphrates. Have we already heard about the Euphrates? Okay. He poured it out on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. Have we already heard about water drying up? Yep. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Ladies and gentlemen, what you have just read is a neat and tidy summation of the great and strategic military victory of King Cyrus. He was the king from the east. He was east of Babylon. King Cyrus and the fall of Babylon. When the divinely appointed king of the east showed up, there was nothing that could keep him out. But then, hey, come on, who who cares about Cyrus? We're third millennials. Unless, of course, what we've just read here in Revelation isn't about the Persian Cyrus at all. Could that be it? So who could this king of the East be in the apocalypse? Three clues. Jot them down. Fascinating. Jot these down. Clue number one. The name Cyrus means son. It comes up in the morning and and goes down at night. It means sun. Cyrus means sun. Have we heard about the sun in this series of rumors from the east? Clue number one, Cyrus means sun. Clue number two, the Greek for east, actually in this case, is a two-word phrase that means rising sun. Rising sun. Or you can combine it, sunrise. All right? And clue number three, fascinating this one. Isaiah 45.1, which we read a moment ago. I want to talk about my anointed Cyrus. Remember God saying that? My anointed one Cyrus. Listen to this. God calls Cyrus his anointed, or in the Hebrew, Mashiach, which is used only in Isaiah 45 and in Daniel 9, verses 25 and 26, where in Daniel 9 it is translated Messiah. Our English word comes from the Hebrew. Messiah. Now we take those three, just those three clues, ladies and gentlemen. Who do you suppose is this apocalyptic king that comes riding to earth from the east and is called the son of righteousness, Malachi 4.2, the sunrise, Luke 178, and the Messiah, John 141. Who might that be? Keep your pen moving. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, confirms that it is none other than King Jesus. (laughs) There's no rocket science here. We simply are letting the Bible interpret itself. Let's take a look. Just turn two pages over to Revelation 19. You're already there in 16. Just go over to 19. 
Zoe read these words with her dad, Edwin, just a moment ago. Let's read them again. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, crimson. And his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Finally, verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There he is, ladies and gentlemen, the great king of the East. Imagine my surprise. I'm reading the late Australian author and Bible scholar, Louis Weir. Imagine my surprise to discover that East, in fact, write that down, that East is King Jesus' favorite direction. Check this out. Just keep your pen moving. Numbers chapter 2, verse 3. The tribe of Judah was to camp... I'm quoting now, on the east side toward the rising sun. And Jesus is called in Revelation 5, 5, the the line of the tribe of Judah. Write it down. East is his direction. Jesus, in in the little mini apocalypse in the Gospels, Matthew 24, his signs of the times chapter, Jesus says, let me tell you what it's going to be like when I come. Second coming, he described it as lightning that shines from the east. And then goes to the west. It doesn't shine from the north to the south. It starts in the east. Notice this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jot it down. The Bible calls Jesus the morning star which rises after a long dark night. It's the star in the east. When you go out running in the morning to the east, it's that star. It's the planet, of course. It's that star, the morning star. Great controversy, that apocalyptic classic. Jot this down. Soon, describing the second coming of Jesus, soon there appears in the east a small black cloud about half the size of a man's hand. What's half the size of a man's hand? You ever been able to figure that one out? What's half the size of a man's hand? Well, if this is, here's a man's hand. If this is the full size of a man's hand, half the size would be this. You know, I've just reduced it by half, haven't I? I've been just putting my, putting my fingers into a fist. Well, does that mean your fist is right up here so it fills your face? No. The only place I can put it as far as I can get it from me, this is the perspective, it would have to be right about here. The small black cloud, the size of a fist on the eastern horizon. Now, this is an incredible description. Try to imagine what it will be like to watch this moment transpire. The people of God, reading on, know this to be the sign of the Son of Man. In solemn silence, they gaze upon it as it draws nearer the earth, becoming lighter and more glorious until it is a great white cloud. Its base, a glory like consuming fire, and above it, a rainbow. Jesus rides forth as a mighty conqueror. Wow. We were having brunch together as elders just a couple Sundays ago. And we were sharing stories. And one of our elders shared the story of his daughter who left God, left the church. Years later, she called one morning. She said, Mom and Dad, i got to talk to you. Last night, I dreamed that Jesus was returning. 
And I woke up this morning and I knew I have to get my life right with Jesus. And I want to come back to the church. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no question. A visualization of the return of Christ does something deep within the human soul. If you've lived in any kind of expectancy for it, the visualizing of it awakens this sense of need or this sense of I want to be ready or this sense of joy, but it awakens something in the heart. Oh, I tell you what, I want to be there when that mighty King of the East comes riding through. Don't you? Come on, write it down. Rumor number three. He's coming. That's the rumor. He's coming. Which is why, by the way, this rumor is the very best rumor of all three of them. And which is why this rumor will panic the mighty Babylon like no other rumor she has ever heard. I don't know where you're going to be in two weeks, but I hope and pray you're right here. Because this whole series shuts down in two weeks with the teaching, the King of the North. We have quietly kept quiet about the King of the North this entire series, knowing He's there in Daniel 11. We've read it. We've noted it. And it's going to be cryptic. I'm going to warn you, the teaching will be cryptic. You'll have to read between the lines, but those who are able to read between the lines will be able to identify the dark and evil King of the North. He is not the King of the East. It's the rumor of the... Approaching king of the east that strikes panic in the heart of the king of the north, Babylon. We'll unpack that. I hope you'll be here for the finale. Today it's king of the east. And by the way, did you notice? It's not just the king of the east. It's kings, plural. Plural. Why is it plural here? Let's read, the, let's read verse 12 again. Chapter 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And who might these kings be? If we let John interpret himself, there's no question. No question. Jot this down. Keep your pen moving now. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, speaking of Jesus to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings. And priests to his God and Father. Write that down. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. For he, Jesus, is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him, those in the final showdown, they are called, chosen, and faithful. One more verse. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones. And they, and they those whom Jesus takes to heaven, they sat on them. Keep your pen moving. When John describes the kings of the east, he draws a circle so wide that it draws in every man, woman, and child who follows Jesus. Every man, woman, and child. No, they don't return with Jesus. How could they return with Jesus? They're on this earth. Impossible. But John intentionally uses the plural. Write that down. In his use of the plural, he uses it to teach that because of their allegiance to the king of the east, his victory, his is their victory too. When he conquers the enemy, they conquer in Christ. They are kings with him. He has not returned yet, this heavenly Cyrus. But he is coming soon. Which is why, by the way, <laughs> I can watch the unfolding nuclear showdown with North Korea and not lose a night of sleep over it. My mother was born in Pyongyang. You never knew this. I've never told you. My mother was born in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. Child of a missionary. I'm not worried. I just know that when the rulers of this earth have exhausted their final solution, 
The King of the East will come triumphantly riding from the sunrise. Hallelujah. I'm not worried today. I'm not going to lose any sleep over the quagmire in the Middle East. As long as our son-in-law Andrew isn't sent to Iraq, I won't lose any sleep. I have no clue what the elections are going to teach us in a few days. And by the way, I'm not sure there is human brilliance sufficient to solve the moral, social, and human crisis this world is facing. I carry in the back of my Bible these words. I brood over them now and then. The, written a hundred years ago, the present is a time of overwhelming interest to all living. Rulers and statesmen, men who occupy positions of trust and authority, thinking men and women of all classes, have their attention fixed upon the events taking place about us. They are watching the strained, restless relations that exist among the nations. These words could have been written yesterday. They're watching. They observe the intensity that is taking possession of every earthly element and they recognize that something great and decisive is about to take place, that the world is on the verge of a stupendous crisis. I'm not worried. All I know, I don't know, the, I don't know what, what these powers will do. All I know is that this night of crushing darkness is nearly over. You say, oh, Dwight, it's not crushing. It's not very dark around here. Kind of enjoying life right now. Obviously, you are not a part of the Merlin Poole family. You don't know. You haven't experienced, have you? That's why, life, that's why life's so good for you. You haven't experienced death. You don't know. This family broken, broken. I'm going to talk about the Judith Peters family. One week, unexpectedly, suddenly, two well-known members of this community, gone. You let a little trouble come into your life. You know about darkness. You will know about a longing for sunrise. But here's the good news. As far as I know, there's never been a midnight in the history of this world that has not been followed by a sunrise. Hallelujah. There will be a sunrise, and the sunrise will always come from the east. Write it down, ladies and gentlemen. East is the good word because in Bible prophecy, east is a four-letter word that is spelled H-O-P-E. Hope comes with the sunrise. You can just hang on through this night. Hang on through the night. There's a sunrise coming. We have this hope. I tell you what, we really do have this hope. And nobody, and I mean nobody, can take it away from us. Hallelujah.